Israeli warplanes strike Hamas targets in Gaza. Hamas vows to kidnap more Israeli civilians. It's Tuesday, October 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, as the violence continues, the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip is overwhelmed. Our capacity is very limited, especially in the intensive care units, operation rooms, and the emergency rooms. The four-day-old war has already killed at least 1,600 people. Also this hour, a nationwide problem in schools. I was surprised by the really sharp rise chronic absenteeism. A new study finds absenteeism is double what it was before the pandemic, plus the creative solutions some colleges are finding to deal with the high demand for on-campus housing. Forecast says mostly cloudy, highs in the 60s today. It's 701. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. The Israeli military says it has largely reclaimed control of southern Israel, the region that had been attacked by Hamas militants. The Israeli military continues to heavily bomb Gaza and place the region under siege. Jason Shawa is a Palestinian living in Gaza. Life is, has, has, has become literally unbearable. Israeli airstrikes have killed about 700 Palestinians, about a third of them women and children. Israel says Hamas killed at least 900 Israelis. The Israeli military says it has discovered, quote, hundreds and hundreds of bodies of Hamas militants who were fighting inside Israel. That is a sign of the size of the attack. Ukraine's president says the West must unite against terror, and he compared Hamas attacks on Israelis to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has more from Kharkiv. Speaking via video link, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told the NATO parliamentary group in Denmark that the Hamas militants who attacked Israel are terrorists. Zelensky compared Hamas's deadly attacks on Israeli civilians to Russian soldiers killing Ukrainians in the city of Bucha last year. You see it. You see the same blood on the streets. You see the same civilian cars shot up. You see the same bodies of people who have been tortured. Later, in his daily video address to the public, he said Russia wants to destabilize the region. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kharkiv. The White House says President Biden will speak to the American people later today about the situation in Israel. At least 11 Americans have been killed in the attacks. Disgraced crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried's trial is scheduled to resume today with testimony from Caroline Ellison. As NPR's David Gura reports, Ellison ran Bankman-Fried's crypto hedge fund and is his ex-girlfriend. No other witness's testimony in this trial is as highly anticipated or will be as closely scrutinized. Caroline Ellison met Sam Bankman-Fried at the trading firm Jane Street after she graduated from Stanford University. And Ellison helped Bankman-Fried build a crypto empire that collapsed spectacularly late last year. She also dated the defendant. Ellison was the CEO of Alameda Research, the hedge fund Bankman-Fried co-founded, which allegedly stole billions of dollars from FTX customers. Ellison pleaded guilty to criminal fraud charges about a month after FTX filed for bankruptcy, and she has a cooperation agreement with the prosecution. David Gura, NPR News, New York. President Biden has been interviewed by the special counsel who is investigating his handling of classified documents at the end of the Obama administration. This is separate from special counsel Jack Smith's investigation of former President Donald Trump's handling of classified material. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Healy and other state leaders are showing their support for Israel after the attacks by Hamas. The leaders gathered on Boston Common yesterday, and WBUR's Ariel Gray was there. Religious and political speakers took the stage in front of hundreds of people to decry the recent attacks. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu emphasized the city's support for Israel. We will continue to stand with Israel in grief, in outrage, and we stand with Israel in love and solidarity for justice, for security, and for peace. Governor Maura Healey and Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey also spoke to the crowd, affirming their support for Israel and Boston's Jewish community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. We will hear from Congressman Seth Moulton on the situation in Israel on Radio Boston today. You can listen this morning at 11 here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Former President Donald Trump is blaming President Biden for the situation in Israel. That was one of the messages he tried to convey at a campaign stop in Wolfboro, New Hampshire yesterday. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports that Trump, who is facing multiple criminal cases, also compared himself to a notorious mob figure. Trump reprised many of his old campaign themes. He said he wanted to complete the wall along the U.S.-Mexico border and that he favors the death sentence for drug dealers. He also repeated the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him and called the criminal cases against him election interference. Every time the radical left Democrats, Marxists, communists, and fascists indict me, I consider it a great badge of honor because I am being indicted for you. I am being indicted for you. Trump, who bragged that he's been indicted more times than the notorious mob boss Al Capone, is facing more than 90 criminal charges, including allegedly violating national security laws and conspiring to overturn an election. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is spending $82 million to help protect endangered right whales. The whales are commonly found off the coast of Cape Cod. There are fewer than 350 right whales left in the world. The federal money will be used to develop technology that is designed to reduce the risk of collisions between whales and ships. It will also support the development of fishing gear that won't entangle the whales. A longtime advocate for the homeless in Massachusetts has died. Chris Alba spent nearly two decades doing street outreach for Boston Medical Center. He was an advocate for harm reduction strategies for drug users, which involved distributing clean needles. Relatives tell the Boston Globe that Alba died in his Revere home last month. He was 50 years old. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. The Celtics fell to the Knicks in an exhibition game last night, the final in New York, 114-107. to The Seas visit Philadelphia tomorrow, and the Red Sox have fired pitching coach Dave Bush. He led the staff for four seasons. They also fired infield instructor Carlos Fablis. Looks like we'll see clouds today, a few scattered showers in spots. Temperatures will be in the low 60s. Tonight will be cloudy with lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Temperatures getting into the upper 60s tomorrow. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. On the fourth day of the declared war in the south of Israel and Gaza, Israel's military says it has regained control of areas in the south of the country attacked by Hamas militants. In Gaza... Retaliatory airstrikes from Israel have crushed entire neighborhoods and left hundreds dead and many more injured, even after the Israeli army gave advance orders for civilians to evacuate. But there really is nowhere for them to go. Thousands of the wounded are being taken to the city's largest hospital, Dar al-Shifa. NPR's Leila Fadl spoke with the director of that hospital. His name is Dr. Mohammed al-Salmeya, and he says the hospital is overwhelmed. And then um, you said the capacity is difficult. If you could describe the hospital for me right now, what does it look like? How many, where are people sleeping? Dr. Salmea said supplies and medicine were already running low when he spoke with us on Monday. Next to go, he feared, would be electricity. Israel cut off power to Gaza after Hamas launched its surprise attack over the weekend. The hospital is relying on a generator with a dwindling supply of fuel. You know, it is very difficult to run an electrical generator for 18 hours a day. And of course, the generators we have do not support the amount of equipment we need to use. Now, with so many injured, Dr. Elsomea says hospital staff are forced to decide which patients get treated first if they are treated at all, and those decisions become more wrenching as the death toll grows. We are doing what we can to handle the most difficult cases first and get the simple cases handled fast to make space. And we're calling on the international community to send help with medical equipment and supplies and medicine. So we support the field hospital to be able to handle the amount of the wounded. But if it continues down this path with the closure of borders in this way, then it will be a very difficult situation. As has been reported, Israel has tightened its blockade on Gaza, preventing water, food, and fuel from entering the region. The group Human Rights Watch says these restrictions are a war crime. They said the same of Hamas's unprecedented attack on Israel. Caught in between are civilians who feared this war would someday come. Okay, the doctor we heard from spoke with our colleague Leila Fadl, and uh, she is on the line now from Israel. Leila, what's, what's it like to be calling into Gaza to try to understand the situation? Yeah, I mean, that's the only option we have right now. As you as you mentioned, it's under siege. Journalists also not allowed in. So we're calling in and depending on witness accounts, videos, phone calls. Um, and that's what we have right now in order to understand what's going on there. Well, let's try to get a sense of the broader situation. It seems obvious that whatever yeah. strikes there have been on Gaza up to now, that, that's not the end. Israel plans much more. Yeah, there are signs of a possible ground invasion. We're not not sure when. There have been calls for people to evacuate and get out. Um, Unfortunately, both uh, places are, it's a sealed area with 2.2 million people, and so I'm not sure where they will go. I mean, that doctor told me nowhere in Gaza is safe right now. Um, But there is extreme anger here over the massacres that happened um, uh, in Israeli communities in the southern border. And we, you know, I'm standing right now outside the home of a man, Irodan, who has five members of his family that are missing, and he's not sure where they are, but believes they've been abducted to Gaza. What story have you been able to hear from him? You said you say he doesn't really know where they are now. What does he know, and how has he been able to learn it about his five relatives? I mean, honestly, it was all on a text chain where his family members, cousins, aunt, um, 
and their children, telling him they're here, uh, Hamas is here, we hear Arabic, uh, knocks on the door, and then silence from some of them. And it was later that they realized five people um, remained silent. And it was only through a video that he found online through a Hamas channel that he saw a picture of one of his children's cousins that is now apparently in captivity, um, being pulled away. And so it's really devastating for them not to know. And he's asking for Hamas to release children and the elderly and not involve them in this conflict. When the Defense Minister of Israel says things uh, about Gaza that make it clear that civilians in Gaza will be affected as well as militants. For example, when the defense, defense yeah. minister says, we're cutting off electricity, we're cutting off water, we're cutting off food to Gaza, does yeah. that express the anger or rage of Israelis after civilians were targeted uh, in, in villages around outside of Gaza? Yeah, there is a real feeling that people want retaliation. They want something done. Um, unfortunately, right now, there are more people dying, and the death toll has gone up to about 770 people, according to the health ministry in Gaza. There's 900 people in Israel. And so, but the international community is calling that siege. Uh, as you pointed out, Human Rights Watch is calling it a war crime. The head of the UN saying he's deeply distressed. I want to talk a little bit more about this. It strikes me that while civilians are always in the line of fire in any war, and have perhaps even more so been in the Middle East, this still stands out. Hamas attacked civilian areas and took away civilian hostages. Uh, Israelis yeah. have now been striking in a densely populated area, and there was an Israeli minister, the, the Minister of Strategic Affairs on NPR yesterday, who said in advance there will be civilian casualties and demanded that the world accept this as an inevitable consequence of what Israel feels it needs to do to Hamas. As someone who's covered the region for, for many years, what do you think about as you see the way that civilians have become central to this war rather than fighters? I mean, I think about the loss of life for uh, a 15-year-old in Gaza. That's five wars that they've lived through, um, thousands of people who've been killed. For the families on the on the border, some uh, the children of Holocaust survivors, um, this harkens back to a time like that. Hundreds of people killed or taken. There are people here giving blood, trying to identify the missing and the dead. Uh, sorry, trying to get the dead identified here. And so it is absolute tragedy and anger here right now. What are you looking for in the days ahead? And I don't really mean uh, a forecast because who can forecast the future, but what will you be watching and observing as you move through and around Israel? We'll continue to report. I think we're watching whether this moves to be something that is more multi-front. For now, it is contained to the Gaza border, but does it break out into a larger regional uh, conflict? I think that is the big concern going forward. Also, where do people go from here when there is so much anger over civilian death? People who are not fighters, who are not fighting this conflict, who are not involved in in hurting one another, what happens to them? Just in a couple of seconds, have the air raid sirens stops, stopped, meaning have the Hamas missiles died off? No, even last night we were hearing booms in the distance. The air raid sirens re re remain going off. Um, and in the southern towns, there are still reports of, uh, of uh, N clashes. NPR's Leila Fadl, thank you so much. Thank you.
People around the world showed support for Israel in recent days. Landmarks from the Eiffel Tower in Paris to the White House in Washington were lit in blue and white, the colors of the Israeli flag. But some Americans also marched in support of Palestinians or issued statements blaming Israel. These activists highlighted Israel's ongoing treatment of Palestinians in the generations-old conflict over land. NPR's Brian Mann has been tracking this. Brian, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Who's marching for the Palestinians? Well, these are progressive and far-left groups and Islamic political organizations that have long advocated for Palestinian independence. Here's the sound of a protest in New York City. And it's worth pointing out, Steve, that song, that chant by some interpretations uh, calls for establishment of a Palestinian state with borders that could effectively erase Israel from the map. Uh, There were pro-Palestinian protest marches with hundreds of people in Atlanta, Chicago, Denver, San Diego, and Washington, D.C. At some of these rallies, pro-Israel protesters also gathered, and in in some places, scuffles broke out between activists. Weren't there also uh, student groups at Harvard University that issued a statement on this? Yeah, that's right. Roughly 30 Harvard student groups, many led by Arab or Muslim activists or students with ties to predominantly Muslim countries. They co-signed this letter, which reads, and I'm quoting here, Steve, We hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Uh, These groups described Israel as a colonial apartheid country. Okay, I understand the political argument or the historical argument they're making. In the 1940s, Israelis and Palestinians, according to the UN, were both supposed to get a state. Uh, Israelis got theirs, the Palestinians didn't. In more recent times, Gaza has been isolated and surrounded by giant walls put up by Israel. But the most recent news here is of Hamas fighters killing or kidnapping women and children. How did the activists account for that? Yeah, the timing of these marches, Steve, as some Israeli neighborhoods were still under siege, sparked rage from many politicians. You know, Democrats and Republicans spoke out, especially here in New York. Governor Kathy Hochul called the New York City march abhorrent and morally repugnant. Uh, Senator Chuck Schumer described the rally as cold-hearted. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Harvard graduate and a Republican, condemned that student statement as abhorrent and heinous and called on Harvard officials to denounce the letter. I did reach out to Harvard officials for for a comment, and they have not responded. It's worth pointing out in New York City, meanwhile, the NYPD has increased security around synagogues and Jewish community organizations. Do you hear pro-Palestinian activists responding to the criticism? Well, I spoke to Manolo de los Santos, who heads a group called the People's Forum in New York City. Uh, He defended his organization's right to protest peacefully, to criticize Israel for the treatment of Palestinians. I asked him if he's comfortable with Hamas's attack on civilians, the deliberate killing and kidnapping of young people and elderly Israelis. We spoke by phone. Here's what he said. I do know it's a war. I wish there weren't Israeli young people who had to die. The same way I regret the fact that so many thousands of Palestinians are dying. De Los Santos told me he wouldn't criticize any part of Hamas's attack. I should say, Steve, NPR has spoken with other supporters of Palestinian independence who have called for nonviolent resistance. NPR's Brian Mann, thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, many colleges and universities are getting creative, trying to meet the demand for on-campus housing. We'll look at some of the ways schools are dealing with the nation's housing shortage. It's 20 minutes past 7. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets, on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Brimmer in May, a pre-K through 12 all-gender day school in historic Chestnut Hill, with an open house on October 22nd and November 8th. Brimmer.org. Automakers are moving toward electric vehicles, but the route many are choosing to get there involves a lot of trucks and SUVs that are not electric. What's unusual is that this is a transition like we've never seen before, probably since the moving assembly line of Henry Ford. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More on the complicated transition for automakers on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Some clouds and scattered showers in our forecast today. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Tonight should be cloudy with lows going down into the 40s and partly sunny tomorrow. Highs in the upper 60s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're both here in Washington, D.C. Good morning. If you are around in the 1970s, then you will remember how conflict in the Middle East sent gasoline prices soaring. Ever since then, there have been fears of that happening again. This weekend's attacks in Israel did send tremors through the global energy market, but so far at least the pain has not stretched to U.S. gas pumps. NPR's Scott Horsley has more on this. Oil production in Israel typically refers to olive oil, not crude oil, but the country does sit in the middle of an oil-rich neighborhood. So energy expert Amy Myers-Jaffe of New York University says it's no surprise the global price of crude spiked after this weekend's attack on Israel by Hamas and Israel's retaliatory strikes in Gaza. Whenever missiles fly in the Middle East, that creates upward pressure in the oil market because there's always this fear that the conflict will escalate. Energy traders are trying to handicap the possible ripple effects. What would happen to global oil supplies if a potential diplomatic opening between Israel and Saudi Arabia is sidetracked, or if Iran's oil exports become the target of more rigorous sanctions? Oil prices jumped about 4% on Monday, but they're still lower than they were a week ago, and U.S. gasoline prices have come down significantly over the last month. Energy analyst Patrick DeHaan, who's with Gas Buddy, says a number of seasonal factors are helping to keep a lid on pump prices. Refineries have switched to a winter blend of gasoline that's cheaper to make. And with kids in school and leaves turning color, Americans are just driving less. There's a lot of downward movement that will offset, for now, the rise in the price of oil because the seasonality in gasoline is overpowering what's happening overseas. 
Dahan thinks even if tension in the Middle East sends oil prices soaring towards $100 a barrel, the effect on domestic gasoline prices should be muted. On the other hand, if crude oil prices stabilize, he says drivers could get a break, with pump prices falling by another 20 to 45 cents a gallon. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. One of the basic rules of journalism is that you report the news without fear or favor. You don't favor your friends. You don't favor your advertisers. People who follow politics in Florida know of a must-read news site whose publisher says he does not play by those rules. The news site is called Florida Politics, and on that site it can be hard to tell the difference between what's news and what's advertising. NPR's David Folkenflik has the story. Peter Schorsch has built up a near-mythic stature in state political circles. He will determine whether or not something is news in the state of Florida. Eunuch Epstein-Ortiz is a progressive communications consultant based in Tampa. In 2018, Epstein-Ortiz was helping to run a major union's voter outreach efforts. She says Schorsch asked the union to take out ads on his sites about it. And when she refused, Florida politics coverage of the union's efforts stopped. He's only covering the story if you've written a check. Last year, Epstein Ortiz ran for the state Senate herself. She concluded that coverage in the site, Florida politics, was a necessity, not a luxury. Consultants told her there was one way to ensure that would happen. We made the decision to purchase an ad package and everything changed almost overnight. Florida politics's headlines about her included Unic Ortiz vows to stand up to corporations and Unic Ortiz garners endorsements from 11 state lawmakers. She now calls that pay for play. Schorsch rejects that label viscerally and says whether she paid didn't affect his coverage. She blamed me for her loss. It did, that election didn't have anything to do with me. Even so, we heard the same story from politicians running the gamut, from liberal Democrats to Republicans who favor former President Donald Trump or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Consultants, corporate interests, and lobbyists take out those ads too. Those who neglect to do so might suffer in Florida politics, either from negative coverage or none at all. Pay up, and the posts often read like lyrical press releases. I am sympathetic to the idea that I play favorites. I absolutely play favorites. Just to be clear, this isn't the way things are supposed to be done. Journalists deliver the news and are supposed to exercise independent judgment. Schorsch disavows such responsibilities. I don't think I've ever held myself up as a journalist. I've said that I'm a publisher, um, that I publish the work of other journalists. Often its articles are directly influenced by who's paying, but how can you tell which ones? A story without a byline deflects blame from the sugar industry for water pollution, or Schorsch's own columns reflecting the civic spirit of a Tampa power company that advertises. Schorsch says a family friend is the new top lobbyist there, but just shrugs it all off. I think that there are still gray areas that I get into. I still have very strong strategic business relationships with people that opens doors, provides revenue. In one recent appeal to politicians, consultants, and campaigns that we reviewed for this story, Schorsch offered a $5,000 package that included ads and native content about key endorsements and fundraising. Native content is effectively an ad that looks like an independently reported piece. Most news organizations have ethics codes requiring clear-cut labels placed on native content. Can't find that anywhere on Schorsch's site. I think that's a problem. I think that's flawed. I think that's not journalism, but it is masking itself as journalism. 
Neil Brown is head of the Pointer Institute. That's a nonprofit journalism center in St. Petersburg. Brown was the editor-in-chief of the Tampa Bay Times when it investigated Shorsh a decade ago over related concerns. That is problematic for democracy. It's problematic for journalism. It doesn't mean that the information is necessarily bad or false, but own up where it comes from so that people have a right to decide for themselves. Shorsh says conventional news outlets are moving more toward his approach. He jokes he's running a halfway house for former newspaper reporters because he can afford to pay the bills. We're one of the last media outlets that's devoted to full-time coverage of the Florida political process, especially the legislative and governing process. At a time many news organizations are cutting back, Shorsh's ambitions have expanded to nine other states. Last year, he launched the regional news site Southeast Politics. David Folkenflick, NPR News. For the record, David reported this story independent of any advertiser and in collaboration with Miranda Green of the nonprofit newsroom Floodlight. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are coming up next, and in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the struggles faced by the siblings of cancer survivors. It's 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emerson Colonial Theater. With Just For Us, Alex Edelman's one-man show returns to Boston direct from Broadway, December 15th through 17th, emersoncolonialtheater.com. Brown University, offering a portfolio of online, evidence-based mindfulness programs for all. Learn more at professional.brown.edu. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Israeli military says it has largely regained control of areas in the south attacked by Hamas militants. On the fourth day of the war, at least 1,600 people have died. Hamas militants have also taken hostages. Adwa Adar told Sky News her 85-year-old grandmother was kidnapped. It hurts in every inch of our bodies. Uh, We're very scared for her. Um, she's ill, and of course she doesn't have her medicine with her, and we don't even know if she, how long can she survive without her medicine. Videos showed her being taken by gunmen across the border into Gaza on a golf cart. House Republicans are expected to hold a candidate forum today as lawmakers scramble to elect a new speaker. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports two candidates are working to lock down votes. Congressman Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise appear to be in a tight race in their quest for the gavel. Jordan picked up a key endorsement last week from former President Donald Trump and has support from members of the Ohio delegation. Scalise also received several high-profile endorsements. With just a day to go before an expected vote, it's unclear whether either candidate will have enough votes to secure the speakership. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Somerville officials today plan to interview the three finalists in the city's search for a new police chief. The final interviews will be open to the public after the mayor will choose one candidate to become chief. Somerville has been working with an interim police chief since 2020. There is some resistance to the effort on Beacon Hill to change the state observance of the Columbus Day holiday. Alden-Born reports that some of the pushback is coming from Italian-American groups who rallied in Springfield yesterday. The ceremony was held at a statue of Christopher Columbus in Springfield's South End and was hosted by the local chapter of the Sons and Daughters of Italy. Salvatore Sercosta leads the group. He says he opposes a bill in the Massachusetts legislature which would replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. I think a better situation would be instead of replacing adding, let's have a new holiday. Let's honor the indigenous people, the Native Americans, but it shouldn't come at the sacrifice of the Italian holiday of Christopher Columbus. Lawmakers held a hearing on the bill last week, but whether it will actually come up for a vote is unclear. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. One person is dead, three others hurt after the mast of a schooner collapsed off the coast of Maine. Coast Guard officials say the mast fell onto the deck of the Grace Bailey yesterday. The boat was built in 1882. It's not clear why the mast collapsed. Officials have not identified those who were injured. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical now through November 5th. More at theumbrellaarts.org. The Celtics lost to the Knicks 114-107 to 107 in an exhibition game in New York last night. The Seas will visit the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow. Clouds and scattered showers in our forecast today. Temperatures will be in the low 60s. Tonight, cloudy, lows in the 40s, and partly sunny tomorrow with highs in the upper 60s. It is 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to go back now to one of the major stories we've been following, the war between Israel and Hamas. But now we're going to take a look at Egypt, which shares a border with both Gaza and Israel, placing it in a unique security position. During periods of violence in the past, Cairo has sometimes acted as a mediator between Israel and Palestinian groups. This time, Egypt has been publicly warning Israel not to take disproportionate action against Palestinians. Nancy O'Kale is president and CEO of the Center for International Policy. That's a think tank that says it wants to put peace, justice, and sustainability at the center of U.S. foreign policy. She has deep experience in Egypt, and she's with us now to talk about Egypt's role in this war. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So, so what do you see as Egypt's role at this stage as these tensions are so high? 
Egypt has two main roles uh, as the role that it classically played uh, as a mediator in order to ensure that there is truce out there. And uh, the other role is actually to help the people of Gaza, uh, opening the border and providing them with supplies and uh, medicine and aid uh, and a passage to escape the open air prison that they are in right now. So, you know, where people are here are seeing Egypt's current uh, response as kind of a change in tone. Um, Do you see it that way? And and, and what do you think is behind it? Well, for Sisi, he would do anything not to open the borders and not to allow the Palestinians into Sinai. This is something and a position that he had had for a long time. Uh, The reason that he gives the people is that he is framing it as by doing that, we would be betraying the uh, Palestinian cause, we would be allowing the uh, occupation to expand further and to turn the Palestinians into refugees. So and this is not the reality of the case. Ah, I see. So you see that uh, you the see that there's been a re- is that okay? Go ahead. Please continue. Please continue. Uh, Well, the reality of the case is that uh, he has three major problems. He has a competence for uh, security and control problem. He has a political problem and he has a governance problem. The competence problem is that over the past 10 years, he was not able to really quell effectively the insurgency in Sinai. And of course, having uh, opening the borders would be another challenge for him. Uh, but this is his own failure and incapacity. Um, just to tell you, the, the attacks on the army units have been sustained, but three major events in 2015, okay. 2017, and last July, just uh, three months ago, uh, there were attacks that took place that were coordinated and had led to the killing of police officers. It took their time and it reflected that there was a failure in intelligence and also a failure in competence, despite getting $1.3 billion each year in military aid from the United States. I'm sorry, we we are out of time. I do hope we'll talk again. This is a very complex topic, and it does uh, deserve more attention. That's Nancy O'Kale. She's president and CEO of the Center for International Policy. It's a think tank that says it wants to put peace at the center of U.S. foreign policy. She was in France. Many universities and colleges are dealing with a huge demand for on-campus housing that has created shortages at schools across the country. The housing crisis has forced many schools to try to find inventive solutions. Maya Fawaz of member station KUT has this report. Grace Young didn't know what to expect when she moved into her first college dorm this fall. The Texas State freshman says it was a chaotic move-in day here at Arnold Hall. But there was an added challenge. She and her roommate were moving into a room meant for one. Hearing that it was a one-person dorm, I was definitely very nervous about that experience. Grace says she has had to get crafty. Her desk is where she eats, studies, and crochets. She even figured out how to cram a small couch under her bed. We moved in, and my mom's looking at the space, and she's like, I don't know if it's going to fit. And I looked at her and said, it's going to fit one way or another. 
Texas State is one of many schools across the country that's had to get creative to fit more students on campus the last two years. The school has had to turn lots of single-occupancy rooms into doubles and doubles into triples. Even some study rooms were turned into bedrooms. Texas State admitted a record number of freshmen for its third consecutive year. And once again, it's struggling with where to put its record-sized freshman class. Bill Matera has been working to squeeze in all these students. He's Texas State's Director of Housing and Residential Life. But he says this problem isn't unique to his school. If you look across the country, there's lots of schools that are dealing with this challenge of building fast enough, building reasonable enough. Matera says Texas State put a pause on building new dorms during the pandemic. Building materials got way more expensive, and there was no way to tell how many students would come back to campus. So as enrollment numbers returned to pre-pandemic levels in 2021, and more and more freshmen chose to go to Texas State, the school ran out of space. Just north of Texas State, Houston Tillotson University in Austin has about 14% of its students bunking in dorms at another school four miles away. President Melva Wallace says now transportation is the next problem. It's whack-a-mole when it comes to solving these housing issues. She worries the lack of on-campus housing could make students reconsider applying. We are turning this talent away. We're all losing when we don't solve the housing crisis. Big schools in California, like UC Santa Cruz, have also had to increase dorm occupancy and convert study rooms into additional bedrooms. UC Santa Cruz spokesperson Scott Hernandez-Jason says the university wants to house as many students on campus as it can, where studies show they do better academically. But the pandemic also delayed the school's dorm construction projects. The good news is there remains tremendous interest in a UC Santa Cruz education. We continue to receive more interest from students than we can possibly accommodate. Santa Cruz isn't alone in this housing shortage. There's a crisis throughout the UC system. California rents in many places are high, driven up further by inflation, making it difficult for students to find off-campus housing. Some students are living in hotels or even vehicles. Hernandez Jason says the university helps students get placed in emergency housing. We don't believe living in cars is really uh, the right approach for students to have a safe and successful college career. Back on the Texas State campus, Grace Young might have been able to find a bigger space if she had lived off campus. But being in a dorm has made it easy for her to meet new people and makes her feel like part of a community. I never expected to find this many people that I'm like, oh my God, it's my friend over there. I'll see them across campus. Like, it's my friend, you know? And while her dorm room may be cramped, Grace and her roommate have found a way to make it work. She says, for now, it's home. For NPR News, I'm Maya Fawaz in San Marcos, Texas. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Coming up on Morning Edition, we'll hear from some of those in Israel whose family members are missing and believed kidnapped by Hamas. As the Israeli military still battles Hamas militants in several locations inside Israel's borders, WBUR will keep you informed with the latest. Listen for updates at the start of each hour today on WBUR and on the WBUR. App. Clouds and scattered showers in our forecast today. Temperatures in the 60s. Tonight should be cloudy with lows in the 40s and partly sunny tomorrow. Highs in the upper 60s. It is 50 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. In business news, confidence in the state's economy appears to be falling among some local business leaders. That's according to the Business Confidence Index by the Associated Industries of Massachusetts. Christopher Guerin, the organization's vice president, says business owners cite the ability to find qualified employees. The job market uh, continues to be very, very strong, and we're still seeing that in Massachusetts. We have employers saying, hey, look, we're uh, we're kind of slowing some things down, but boy, we're still having trouble finding skilled employees to help us move forward. He says some employers are responding by slowing down production and postponing planned expansions. The Food and Drug Administration is rejecting a request by Cambridge-based Anilum Pharmaceuticals to expand approval for one of its drugs. Anilum wanted the drug Onpatro, approved to treat a heart muscle disease, but regulators said its proven effects lacked clinical meaningfulness. The popular Colby Farm sunflower fields in Newbury will not open this year. Owners say that's because heavy rains prevented the blooms from growing to their full potential. They hope to reopen to visitors next year. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. More than 85,000 adolescents and young adults in the U.S. are diagnosed with cancer each year. There are support groups for these young patients and for their parents. But what's out there for the siblings? NPR's Claire Muyashima decided to find out. Kayla Crum is two years older than her sister Ella Beckett, but growing up, Kayla says she sometimes felt like Ella was ahead of her. I remember she taught me how to French braid, and I was like feeling like that should have been my job as the older sister. I actually grew up with quite a bit of jealousy for my sister. She was naturally gifted at school, at ballet, at athletics, and I was like decently good at those things. Kayla says those feelings didn't change even after Ella turned 18 and was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And Ella, she says she knows it's not just hard on her, but on those around her. When you're diagnosed with cancer, you know that it's about to blow up all the people who love you's world, too. I really struggled with feeling super guilty because, like, I knew I was the reason that Kayla and my parents were, like, having this really difficult time. Kayla says she thought her sister's cancer would bring them together, but instead her sister seemed withdrawn and grumpy. I had all these visions of us having these deep talks and like supporting each other through it, but I had to put in hours of just presence to get maybe, you know, a 15-minute conversation that was healing for us. And Kayla says she also struggled to find people to support her own needs. 
cancer is obviously an earth-shattering diagnosis. I will always think it's been hardest on Ella, and yet it's probably been the hardest thing I've ever experienced in my own life as well. Kayla says she felt guilty complaining about little things. How dare I even let myself wallow or feel sad about a knee injury that has put me on the couch for a while or a setback at work. And it got to the point where I just felt in college, like, do I need to have a public, like, crying breakdown to get some support? Kristen Long is an associate professor at Boston University. She calls siblings of kids with cancer shadow survivors because they often get the trauma, but not the support. They have the urge to protect the people around them. And so they tend to keep this all inside. They try to reduce family stress by doing everything as perfect as they can. Long's research also found that siblings of kids with cancer are at a higher risk of post-traumatic stress, even more so than the patient. They could have nightmares or constantly be on high alert. Almost three quarters of siblings report that these symptoms interfere with their functioning in some way. And Long says if kids are struggling, don't blame the parents, blame the system. Siblings are often not in the healthcare center, and when they are there, it's often on evenings or weekends when staff aren't there. She says that if services aren't fully utilized, they can easily be cut. Ella's been cancer-free for five years, and Kayla, she says she's still working through the emotional residue. I don't know if jealous is the word anymore, but... My parents and other people in our life treat Ella now with such tenderness, and it's not something that I think about every day or that I actively resent, but it's definitely something that happened and it changed how everyone acts toward her forever. Earlier this year, Kayla and Ella started a podcast called My Sister's Cancer, and in November, Professor Long will host a convention for siblings like them in Chicago. Claire Marishima, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in about a half hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, the other fight in Ukraine, the one against corruption. It's 10 minutes before 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic. Artful. Accomplished. And UMass Chan Medical School. Advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu slash together. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world. Our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community. Workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield. Think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And lift off of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Israel says its border with Gaza is secure. Three days after Hamas fighters broke through to launch a deadly attack, President Biden will give an address from the White House this afternoon regarding the situation in Israel. And House Republicans hold a candidate forum today as they work to choose a new Speaker of the House. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, 
Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic. Artful. Accomplished. And UMass Chan Medical School. Advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu slash together. Clouds, some scattered showers today. Temperatures in the 60s. Cloudy tonight with lows in the 40s. 51 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Residents of Timbuktu face food shortages. Al-Qaeda and Islamic State militants blockaded that city in Mali. Humanitarian aid is no longer arriving and travel in or out of the city is almost impossible. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwoto called a resident there. 35-year-old Mahmoud Kasamba says his city is under siege. He says the prices of food and produce have doubled and stocks that were brought south from Algeria to markets across his city have emptied. Timbuktu has an almost mythical status, seen as one of the cradles of Islamic scholarship. It had been experiencing a period of relative peace in recent years after insurgents took over the city in 2012. But now it's on the front line of the fighting again. Kasamba says people feel afraid to leave their homes and that there's no help. In mid-August, JNIM, an al-Qaeda-linked terrorist group, made a declaration of war on Timbuktu. Now thousands of people on the edge of the Sahara have been shut off from the outside world, with no routes in and out by road, air, or along the Niger River. Yeah, there's a direct consequence between the UN withdrawal and uh, what's happening in Timbuktu and the rest of the north. Ulf Lessing is based in the Malian capital Bamako and is Sahel program director for the Konrad Adenauer Foundation. He says last year, the military ordered the UN peacekeeping force of about 13,000 to leave, and now insecurity is rising in northern Mali. It was all part of a nationalist power play. You know, I mean, the government is under pressure. They have to show something. Mali's new military leaders took power two years ago, in the second of two coups within a year, riding a wave of dismay at insecurity and anger at French influence in its former colonies. It's cut ties with France and established closer ties with Russia. The Wagner mercenary group now operates alongside the Malian army and has left a trail of human rights abuses in its wake. The government has claimed that the situation in Timbuktu is under control, but residents say otherwise. And Mahmoud Kasamba says the reality is that people in his city live in fear of what is to come. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. Back here in the U.S., about one in three kids is not in school as often as they are supposed to be. Chronic absenteeism peaked in the COVID pandemic, but now, almost two years into the return to in-person learning, schools are still struggling to get kids to show up. Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting has more. It's the first cool day of fall in Macon, Georgia, and Principal Kizzy Lott is in a floppy green poncho and baby blue rubber boots. So students can dump water on her head. Let's get your bucket. You only get a bucket if you've been regularly coming to school. And by now, Lott is wet. Ready? No, no poncho it's does right nothing. Here. This is fun, but in truth, it's a kind of soft diplomacy. 
There's a message Lot needs these kids to take home today to their grown-ups and their friends who missed school. School attendance matters! Especially in our early grades. That's Lot drying off in a conference room in her school, Bruce Elementary. She says caregivers of little kids might think, Oh, they're just playing all day. But no, that's where the foundation of reading and the foundations of mathematical skills begins. Students missing enough instruction to threaten those foundations was already a problem for Lot's school before COVID. COVID supercharged absenteeism at her school. That was true for the surrounding county school district. And, says Stanford University researcher Thomas D., it was true for the nation. These studies the economics of education, including chronic absenteeism, which is defined as missing 10 percent of potential school time. So a month into school, that's two days. Over a school year, that's like 18 days. Dee says a lot of kids fall into this category. Prior to the pandemic, it hovered around 15 percent, which was already considered too high. The last good federal statistics on chronic absenteeism date to 2015. So Dee went state to state, collecting his own attendance data for 2022, the first year when kids were back in classrooms. My sense was that people were ready to get back to normal. So I'll confess I was surprised by the really sharp rise in chronic absenteeism. What he found and describes in a study published in August was a doubling of the pre-COVID absenteeism rate across the country in districts both urban and rural. That means nearly one in three students missed too much school, even when things were, quote, back to normal. What he's unsure of is why. He found no correlation to community COVID infections. Or whether a state either adopted a masking mandate during that return to schooling or banned masking mandates. It was such a broad phenomenon. Preliminary data indicates the level of chronic absenteeism, which surprised D in 2022, persisted in Georgia in 2023, the second post-pandemic school year. And Georgia generally tracks the national average for chronic absenteeism. Back in Macon, Principal Kizzy Lott's school district knows their 2023 rate was higher than the previous year. Lott has a few guesses why. Homelessness is real. Financial struggles that may affect utilities, that is real. Things are happening within families, whether it's illness, it's death. Those things are real life things that affect a child's attendance. Things tied to poverty. That's why Lot's staff checks in with caregivers after a child's first absence to ask, how can we make it easy to get to school? Sometimes there's no cooperation. In that case, there's court because Georgia has a law mandating school attendance. Kristen Murphy is a local prosecutor who handles absenteeism cases. She says they rarely end in conviction. At the end of the day, the most important thing is the kids being in school. If caregivers can make that happen, Murphy tells them they don't have to see a judge. So that there's that carrot dangling in front of them that I'm not going to get prosecuted if I bring my kids to school. This kind of deal making typically takes about a year to complete. A year in which kids will have missed school. At Bruce Elementary, Principal Kizzy Lott would really rather not use courts to get her students where they need to be. All right, you ready? We got to get up high. Higher, higher. So she's planning more fun things to encourage them to come to school. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone. For more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from historically marginalized communities starting in fifth grade all the way through college graduation. Learn how you can get involved at steppingstone.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel has asked the U.S. for more weapons and has called up reservists as its war with Hamas enters a fourth day. It's Tuesday, October 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, Israel amasses troops for a possible ground invasion of Gaza after the Hamas attack. Our job is to make sure that at the end of this war, Hamas will no longer have any military capabilities to threaten Israeli civilians with. Also, we talk with some of the family members of Israeli civilians who are believed to have been kidnapped by Hamas. We're not talking about military people, we're talking about civilians, we're talking about nine-month baby. we're talking about Holocaust survivors. Also this hour, House Republicans hold a candidate forum to vet candidates for a Speaker of the House. Forecast, clouds, scattered showers today, highs in the 60s. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Israel says it has regained control of areas of southern Israel that were attacked by Hamas militants. The Israeli military says it has found hundreds and hundreds of bodies of Hamas militants who died fighting inside of Israel. That's a sign of the size of the attack that was launched Saturday morning. Israeli officials say at least 900 Israelis have been killed in the attack. Israel has been heavily bombing Gaza. Palestinian officials say at least 700 Palestinians have been killed and say about a third of them are women and children. Iran's supreme leader says the Islamic Republic had no involvement in the Hamas attack. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Ayatollah Ali Khamenei did voice praise for what he called a, quote, irreparable military and intelligence defeat for Israel. In a televised address, his first since the attack, Ayatollah Khamenei said Tehran was not involved. He did, however, hail the operation, saying, quote, we kissed the hands of those who planned the attack on the Zionist regime. The Iranian mission to the United Nations made a similar comment, saying Tehran firmly stands behind the aspirations of the Palestinian people, but refuted claims that it had a role in the operation. Western and Mideast intelligence officials said Iran had provided training, money, and other assistance to Palestinian militants. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The White House says that later today, President Biden will speak about the situation in Israel. The administration says at least 11 Americans have been killed in the attack. There have been many demonstrations in the U.S. in support of Israel. That includes a prayer gathering held by Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, New York, last night. There were rallies in support of Palestinians as well. In New York, police separated opposing groups using metal barricades. House Republicans are trying to elect a new speaker after Kevin McCarthy was removed from the job last week. 
NPR's Susan Davis reports the two declared candidates will make their pitch to Republicans tonight in a forum that's being held behind closed doors. Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan are the only two declared candidates in the race. Neither lawmaker is close to the near-unanimous level of support needed for Republicans to elect a new speaker on the House floor. And while the ousted Kevin McCarthy initially ruled out trying to reclaim the gavel, he indicated in a press conference this week that he would if he could get the votes. One of McCarthy's leading detractors, Florida's Matt Gates, said on social media that it was time for Republicans to, quote, move forward without McCarthy. Republicans plan to hold a secret ballot election on Wednesday, and they could move to the House floor for a public vote, depending on the outcome of that election. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Members of the state's all-democratic congressional delegation are supporting Israel after the attacks by Hamas. But at a rally on Boston Common yesterday, Senator Ed Markey had his speech interrupted by the crowd when he called for de-escalation on both sides. There must be a de-escalation of the current violence. The United States should... Later in the rally, Congressman Jake Auchincloss said de-escalation on both sides is not possible. He called Hamas an internationally recognized terrorist organization. On Radio Boston at 11 today, we will have a conversation about the conflict with Congressman Seth Moulton. A team from the Department of Homeland Security will be in Massachusetts today and tomorrow to review how the state is handling the recent influx of migrants. Politico reports the team will visit Boston and make recommendations about handling the thousands of migrants who've come to Massachusetts over the past few months. Under pressure from local lawmakers, the Biden administration agreed last week to send the DHS team. The state says the influx of migrants has put a strain on support services. Harvard professor Claudia Golden says now that she's won the Nobel Prize for Economics, she plans to continue her research and to write another book. WBUR's Josie Garino has more on Golden's work. Golden won the Nobel for her research on the gender pay gap. She says the emergence of remote work in recent years has enabled women to consider higher-paying jobs they might not have previously pursued. Women who might want have wanted to take a job in finance, high-paying job, but they knew that they would have to go to Tokyo every three weekends. They couldn't do that. Now we have learned that you could do that handshake for the contract in Zurich, in Tokyo, by Zoom. Golden is only the third woman to ever win the Nobel Prize for economics. She's been at Harvard since 1990. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. A special primary election will take place in parts of Worcester and Hampshire counties today. The race will determine which Republican candidate will make the final ballot to fill a state Senate seat that's been open since June. That seat was vacated by Ann Gobi. She now serves as Rural Affairs Director for the Healy Administration. The time is six minutes past eight. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. 
The Celtics lost an exhibition game to the Knicks last night. The final in New York, 114-107. The Seas visit Philadelphia tomorrow. Red Sox have fired pitching coach Dave Bush and infield instructor Carlos Fabless. The team is also still looking for a general manager. Clouds and scattered showers in our forecast today. Highs in the 60s. Tonight will be cloudy with lows in the 40s and partly sunny tomorrow. Highs in the 60s, 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington presenting Fat Ham. The 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Join Juicy, the saucy protagonist, and a sharp, deliciously funny take on the Shakespeare classic Fat Ham, playing now through October 29th at the Huntington Calderwood. HuntingtonTheater.org. On a Tuesday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Hamas, the group that launched that massive attack in southern Israel this weekend, is believed to be holding more than 100 hostages. Many pictures and videos have emerged showing this. One of those videos, and we're not going to play it, shows a woman and two young red-headed boys being led away by Hamas fighters. The fighters have guns, and some seem to have bloodstains on their shirts. A person can be heard in Arabic asking the gunman not to harm them. The woman is clutching the two children to her chest and wrapping them in a blanket. Our next guest says the woman is his cousin, Shiri Bevis, and the children are four-year-old Ariel and nine-month-old Kafir. Yossi Schneidel joins us now from Cholon, Israel. Yossi, thank you so much for talking to us at such a difficult time for your family. Hi, thank you for calling. How, how did you come to know about or see this video that you believe shows your cousin and her children being abducted? We wake up and Saturday morning to the sound of one alarm after another, uh, something that sounds crazy. And that uh, we thought that there's something wrong with the system. But soon enough, we started to get pictures and news from all over, all over the place that we have been attacked by thousands of missiles. And then we started hearing that uh, there is a Hamas organization inside of Israel. And I opened the telegram and I opened every group that I could just to look for any information, any movie, any picture that I can find. And one of the pictures, unfortunately, I saw Shiri and the two children. Hmm. And then we understand that she'd been kidnapped. Other members of the family, are, have you been able to reach other members of the family? Are they safe? No, all six of them has been kidnapped. Shiri's husband, Yarden, has also been kidnapped. Just this morning, we, we've got a photo of him uh, riding on a motorcycle with two, uh, with a couple of Hamas uh, uh, terrorists all surrounding him. He's bleeding and he's crying. Uh, my aunt and her husband, Yossi, my aunt Margit and her husband, Yossi, are also been kidnapped. My aunt, she's uh, uh, in the very high stage of Parkinson. And she has, she's diabetic and she has blood issues and she needs life-saving medicine. But without them, she won't survive more than a couple of days. Kfir, as you said, is only nine months old. He needs his diapers, he needs his baby food, he needs things to survive. He's a baby. And, uh, he's, an, he's an infant. He's very vulnerable. And so you said six members of your family overall are, are missing. How, how you, you, yeah. you told us that you, you were opening your social media apps trying to find out what was going on. How are you getting information now? For example, is the government in contact with you? 
I'm still, I've, we, we, we will cut up with the authorities in Israel, but for now there is zero information. We just get, we give an information about uh, any details that we can get about our family, but uh, we, we still didn't hear, didn't hear from Hamas or anybody, so we don't know exactly what's happening with it. I cannot imagine how you are feeling right now. Um, would it be possible for you to try to describe it? I think that it, it took me almost two days just to to wake up, to to understand that it's not it's not a dream, it's not a nightmare, it's something that it really happened. Hmm. I, I don't know if you know that, but 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 they open uh, Facebook Live and they open FaceTime and and broadcast but live that they kidnap people and they they torture people and they're spitting on people, they're eating people, including kids, including babies, including Holocaust survivor that been molested on Facebook Live. It, it, uh, so and, so and, when you see these things... Yeah. Can you, can you, how are you dealing with this, if I may ask? Or I would imagine on the one hand, you cannot turn away. On the other hand, it must be very traumatic for you to keep looking at these videos, even if you aren't seeing your own relatives being abused in this way. How do you, how are you managing your own feelings, if you don't mind my asking? I'm, I'm not in this stage right now. We're at the stage of acting. We're at the stage of doing things. And we're not in the stage of uh, feeling sorry for ourselves. Hmm. How, how, what can you do? And if I may ask, what do you have an opinion about what you think Israel's government should do now? Israel should, be, should do, first of all, the best that they can to return the uh, uh, safety of the citizens to Israel. We are still being fired rockets from Gaza. All the times, we still there is the terrorist organization that's still coming into Israel and, and uh, killing civilians and killing our soldiers and our uh, uh, officers. So we know what we need to do is to win this war, and then then we need to talk about the other things. Yossi Schneidel is the cousin of Shiri Bibes, who along with other family members, has been presumed to be abducted by Hamas. And he is the cousin, as we said, and understand this is a very difficult time for your family. We do appreciate your sharing your, your candid thoughts with us at this Thank time you. and our very best wishes Thank to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, the turmoil in the Middle East adds new urgency to disputes here in Washington, D.C. President Biden will address the nation later today. But the House of Representatives remains paralyzed until Republicans can elect a new speaker. This comes after a small block of hard-right Republicans led an effort, which Democrats joined, to remove Kevin McCarthy from office. At first, McCarthy said he would not run again for speaker. But at a news conference Monday, which was called ostensibly to call for more U.S. support for Israel, the California Republican indicated he would serve again if he could get the votes. That's a decision by the conference. I'll allow the conference to make whatever decision. Whether I'm speaker or not, I'm a member of this body. Okay, let's turn to NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Sue, good morning. Good morning. What's McCarthy thinking? The attack on Israel has scrambled a lot of the calculations here on Capitol Hill. House Foreign Affairs Chairman Mike McCall said he thought it was dangerous to remove the speaker the way Republicans did. And he also made the point on CNN recently that without a speaker, Congress can't move legislation. They can't pass aid to Israel. They can't pass a resolution. He's authored condemning Hamas for the attack. And they can't do anything until there's a speaker in place. All of this seems to have affected McCarthy. He made extensive remarks on Israel. He called a press conference, even though he is not the Speaker of the House. Hmm. But as of now, it still seems pretty clear he doesn't have the votes. Matt Gates, a Florida Republican, who's one of his top detractors, reiterated this on Monday on social media, saying that it was, quote, time to move forward in the conference. I guess we should remember the math. Any House Republican who loses a few House Republican votes can't 
win. Uh, there are a couple of other Republicans who seem to be in the running. Steve Scalise, who has been a number two in the House up to now, and Jim Jordan, very prominent committee chairman. Republicans are trying to hash this all out this week. They held a meeting last night, essentially just to vent some anger from everything that played out last week. They're going to have a candidate forum tonight where Scalise and Jordan will address their colleagues behind closed doors. If all goes to plan, they're going to hold a closed door secret ballot election amongst just Republicans on Wednesday morning. And if they think a Republican can get the votes before the full house, they could move to the full house floor very quickly, even as early as Wednesday. There is a lot of hesitation among Republicans, especially Republicans like McCall, to have this all play out on the floor like it did in January. They don't want to go 15 rounds. They don't want to go several days, especially in following the attack on Israel, because there's a real fear of projecting this sort of image of democracy in the U.S. in disarray in a very public fashion. Uh, just briefly, some people will wonder, like, could the Democrats get involved? Could Democrats give a few votes to someone. Is there, does this, there still seem to be no likelihood of that at all? There still seems to be no likelihood of that at all. Okay. How else has the war in the Middle East affected Congress? Well, in the Senate, I think it's created new urgency around a lot of nominations that are not filled. There's been a blockade of hundreds of military appointees by Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville. There's also new focus on getting ambassadors confirmed. Former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew is waiting to be confirmed as ambassador to Israel. Also, Steve, Ukraine aid changes the tenor of that debate around the U.S. role in aiding democracies. And there's already conversation over whether Congress should couple Ukraine aid with possible aid to Israel. Just a reminder that when it comes to money, the United States can do nothing if the House of Representatives representatives cannot vote. Is that correct, Susan? That is correct. NPR's Susan Davis, always a pleasure hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you. The capital city of Guatemala came to a standstill yesterday. Protesters blocked roads and closed shops to object to an apparent government attempt to overturn the recent presidential election. Here's NPR's Ada Peralta. With tires and sticks and rocks and a thin rope, protesters blocked one of Guatemala City's main highways. The police try to convince them to leave one lane open, but they refuse. One man says, blocking this road is not a crime. El delito es del señor presidente Alejandro Yamatei, que le está robando el deseo, los sueños a muchos y a miles de guatemaltecos. The crime is by the president, he said, who is trying to steal the hopes and dreams of many Guatemalans. Across the city, we talked to many urban dwellers who had never protested. For the past week, they've watched the indigenous communities in the highlands of the country block roads in an act of anger after the attorney general's office raided the electoral commission. And they were inspired. Maria Juana Cap, a housewife, says she's defending the landslide win of an anti-corruption candidate. She's defending democracy for her children. We're leaving them a lesson, she says. Stand up for yourself, or our government will step all over you. This is the most sustained protest in Guatemala in recent memory. It's brought the urban population closer to the marginalized indigenous population. But as night fell and a light rain started, eight days of peaceful protests turned violent. Police have fired tear gas against protesters right here outside of the presidential palace. Uh, and some masked men have started throwing rocks uh, against windows here. And what had been calls for change and calls for hope uh, have now given way to the sounds of destruction. 
The protesters said the rioters were infiltrators. But in the late night speech, outgoing Guatemalan President Alejandro Yamate called the protesters violent and the blockades illegal and vowed to put an end to them. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Guatemala City. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR this Tuesday morning. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll have the latest on the situation in Israel and in Gaza. It's 19 minutes past 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Hosting an in-person open house October 14th, 8 to noon, salemstate.edu slash graduate. Direct hire and auto service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. And Winchester Natural Health, services focusing on conditions like endometriosis, thyroid support, and pain management. WinchesterNaturalHealth.com. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Robin Young. The fighting along the Gaza-Israeli border continues after this weekend's massive coordinated attack by Hamas militants. The U.S. has sent a carrier group and other warships to the eastern Mediterranean Sea in a show of support for Israel. Well, the latest. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Clouds and scattered showers in our forecast for today. Temperatures in the low 60s. Tonight will be cloudy with lows in the 40s. Tomorrow should be partly sunny. Highs in the upper 60s. 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Seed, Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, viking.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskip. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Some congressional opponents of more USAID for Ukraine point to the country's reputation for corruption. The European Union is also raising concerns as Ukraine seeks EU membership. But Ukrainians say that image is outdated and does not reflect their efforts to improve. Here's Joanna Kakissis in Kyiv. On the outskirts of Ukraine's capital, there's a sprawling estate that used to belong to a former Ukrainian president. He had a zoo, a multi-room spa, an antique car collection, even his own gas station. Tour guide Anastasia Lazo shows us a vintage ship docked on the river that served as his private restaurant. And uh, inside there are also like decoration Swarovski chandeliers. There were expensive uh, plates and cups like Versace. 
Rumors spread that even the toilets in his mansion were gold-plated. He was crazy about the gilded decorations and all these things because it's this old mentality that gold is something. It will make you the master. The ex-president, Viktor Yanukovych, paid for it all with taxpayer money. When Ukrainians found out, they were enraged. He fled to Russia almost 10 years ago. So that's the door from where he escaped. Ukraine's leaders say they've been fighting corruption and Western perceptions ever since. I hear this word corruption, corruption, corruption. That's Olga Stefanishina, Ukraine's deputy prime minister for European integration, speaking in Warsaw recently. It's fight against corruption. This is what we do in Ukraine. We fight against corruption. Ukraine's reputation as a corrupt, unreformable country dates to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Newly independent Ukraine saw its state-owned businesses snapped up by organized crime with links to the KGB. Like the gas pipeline, like titanium production, like chemical agricultural production. Daria Kalinyuk is executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Kyiv. The strategy of Kremlin was, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, to use oligarchs to control the strategic assets, to control Ukraine from inside. And petty corruption at every level of society corroded daily life. Ukrainians had to pay bribes to secure building permits, to open businesses, to keep police from harassing them. After the ouster of Yanukovych a decade ago, anti-corruption activists pushed for transparency reforms in line with Europe. Ukraine established all institutions which are necessary to fight against corruption. Said he, Leshenko is an advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky's office. There is anti-corruption bureau, special anti-corruption prosecutor, and special anti-corruption court, plus national agency on corruption prevention. All of these institutions were established with very strong support of international community, including American government. And in 2020, Zelensky's administration introduced DIA, an app that provides citizens with a digital ID that helps them pay for public services online and avoid bribes. It's very simple, convenient for them, and uh, it's like easy to get access to public service. Slava Bonik helped develop the DIA app. But this is the top of the iceberg. The bigger part of our work is the part when we have to redevelop state systems to make them more transparent, more secure. Ukraine's fight against corruption has actually ramped up since Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022. Yaroslav Yurchishin, a member of Ukraine's parliament who is focused on anti-corruption reforms, explains why. Because perception of a society that corruption in a time of war, it's, it's, a, it's murder. Corruption is equal to murder. Yes, yes. Uh, why? Because when you steal some money from budget, in time when this money are very necessary for our security and defense, so the consequences of that is the killing of our soldiers and civilians by Russia. The U.S. Defense Department's Inspector General is establishing a new team in Ukraine to scrutinize military aid to the country. And the Biden administration says it will tie future direct budget aid to Ukraine to anti-corruption efforts. And so it has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. People have to have confidence that it's being dealt with. 
That's philanthropist Howard Buffett speaking to NPR during a recent visit to Ukraine. His foundation has donated nearly half a billion dollars to humanitarian efforts here. It's going to take billions of dollars to rebuild this country. And the people who care about this country and have the authority to make the decisions about how things happen are going to have to make sure that the corruption is not affecting the money that comes in here. Otherwise, you can't be successful in rebuilding. Zelensky is trying to show he has zero tolerance for corruption. He has fired members of his own government over scandals. The head of the Supreme Court has been put on trial for running a bribery scheme. And one of Ukraine's most powerful oligarchs, who helped Zelensky's rise to fame as a comedian, was arrested last month on charges of money laundering and fraud. Leshenko, the presidential advisor, sees Ukraine fighting more than corruption. The most difficult part of the issue, how to fight with the stereotypes. Ukraine has its own stereotypes in eyes of international audience, and to fight with these stereotypes is very difficult, and this will take maybe decades. The former estate of Yanukovych, the disgraced ex-president, is now a park and museum that's open to the public. A pop-up cafe outside sells refrigerator magnets of his infamous golden toilet, which it turns out never existed. Anastasia Lazo, the tour guide, says that toilet is actually a symbol. It's shorthand for everything that was once wrong with Ukraine. While you are counting your coins, trying to get some food to feed your children to make up your life, some people live like that using your taxes. She says she hopes Ukrainians never forget that. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kiev. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next here on WBUR. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition across New England, old telephones are becoming a new way to help process grief. The Israeli military is still battling Hamas militants in several locations inside Israel's borders. You can listen for updates at the start of each hour today here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Israelis across the country are volunteering to help evacuate civilians from communities along the border with Gaza. Israel says it has mostly regained control of the border from Hamas invasion. 
NPR's Daniel Estrin visited a highway rest stop near the area of fighting. This is where the helpers are gathering at one of Israel's darkest hours. There are volunteers handing out all kinds of things for soldiers. There are volunteers driving into towns and rescuing people from towns along the border that have been attacked and bringing them out. There are volunteer reservists, including one we met who went to go milk the cows at one community that had been attacked and where people have been evacuated. And there's one religious Jewish man who's come here to hand out blessings and hugs. Just a short drive away is the Gaza border, where there are still battles between Israeli soldiers and Palestinian militants. And across the way in Gaza, two million Palestinians under Israeli bombardment in a war that is going to last for probably a very long time. The death toll on both sides continues to climb. According to Israeli media reports, Hamas militants have killed more than 900 Israelis. Palestinian health officials say that Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 600 Palestinians. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts House lawmakers hold a hearing today on a bill to update the state's gun laws. A proposal would limit the right to carry guns in certain public places. It would also require serial numbers on parts used to make guns. Democrats released the plan after a series of gun violence incidents in the state that includes a shooting in Boston in August where seven people were hurt. Massachusetts lawmakers are also considering bills that would reform the child welfare system. One proposal would create an Office of Foster Care Review. Another would give more power to the office responsible for making sure that children get help from the state. Officials tell the Boston Globe that the bills come after the deaths of Harmony Montgomery. Montgomery and David Almond. Both children were killed after they were placed with their biological parents. Organizers of the annual Indigenous Peoples Day celebration in Newton say theirs is one of the largest gatherings in the region. WBUR Solon Kelleher reports on yesterday's day of music, dancing, food, and culture. Hundreds of people turned out for Newton's third annual celebration of Indigenous Peoples Day. Mashby Wampanoag Chief Earl Mills Jr. noted the shift in recent years from celebrating Christopher Columbus Day to celebrating the original inhabitants of North America, which he refers to as Turtle Island. We refer to it as the view from the shore. It was always celebrated as the view from the boat, from European perspective. But uh, now it's the view from the shore. It's the celebration of here. There's currently an effort on Beacon Hill to change the statewide designation of the holiday from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. Demolition of the popular Sandwich Boardwalk begins today. Officials are tearing down the old boardwalk after damage from storms made it irreparable. A new boardwalk is being built in its place and officials expect it to be finished by next summer. The time is 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. 
The Celtics lost to the Knicks 114-107 to 107 in an exhibition game in New York last night. The Seas are 1-1 one in, one in the preseason so far. They'll visit Philadelphia tomorrow. Looks like clouds and scattered showers in some spots is the forecast for today. Highs will be in the 60s. It'll be cloudy tonight with lows in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow, though. Highs getting into the upper 60s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Michelle and I are here in Studio 31 in Washington, D.C. The NPR team covering the war between Israel and Hamas includes our colleague Leila Fadel, who we'll hear from elsewhere in the program, and also Daniel Estrin, who is in Tel Aviv today and has been with us almost continuously. Daniel, will you reset the scene for us? What's happening right now? Yeah, let me just orient you on the map. I'm in Tel Aviv on the Mediterranean coast. South of here uh, is the Gaza Strip, just about southwest uh, uh, of the country. And and around the Gaza Strip are Israeli communities that have been attacked starting Saturday morning. Is Hamas militants coming in on paragliders and motorcycles. You've heard all of that. And even today, we were hearing reports that there were just a couple more firefights between Hamas militants and Israeli troops in a couple of communities there. But uh, Israel says it killed many hundreds of Gaza militants inside Israel. It says there are no more infiltrations from Gaza and that Israel has nearly completed the evacuation of Israeli civilians uh, around the border area. Of course, a lot of concerns about hostages inside Gaza. No more infiltrations, meaning that from the Israeli point of view, they have regained control of all Israeli territory. Is that what that means? Well, the army says mostly regain control, Ah, more or less is the quote. Understood, understood. So I know that you were down in that region last evening. What did you see? Yeah, we stopped at a highway rest stop uh, close to the areas that have been that were invaded by Hamas. You know, we saw the McDonald's and all the restaurants at that stop were closed, but uh, it was this hive of activity, Israelis coming from across the country to help in any way they can. And, And I recorded along the way. We are now driving in between two cars as a volunteer convoy of armed Israelis, a father and three sons. They are rushing into the town of Sderot right along the Gaza border to rescue families, Israelis, who have been stuck in their safe rooms in their homes as the attacks have been unfolding. And as we're driving, we're seeing now huge flames and plume of smoke. Here it is. Look right there in front of us. We pass an open field in flames where it looks like a rocket has fallen. And we enter the town of Sderot that's being emptied. We just passed a car that was smashed into an electric pole. We stop outside an apartment building and a family rushes into the volunteers' cars. There's a mom, a dad, and three daughters. They're really stressed. We don't have time to talk. They're rushing into the car and we speed back to the rest stop where I see the young girls finally smile. They're relieved to get out. And at this rest stop, I hear what is on Israelis' minds, routine concerns, and some of their thoughts on the war. I run into a familiar face, Ronit Sela. She is Israeli, 
For 10 years, she worked for an organization advocating Palestinian rights in Jerusalem. But now she's one of the volunteer drivers rescuing Israelis trying to escape. When Israeli Jews know that I help Palestinians, they often view me as somebody who chose a side. And as a human rights activist, I can say that I chose humanity. Right now, there are families with kids and disabled people who are just in panic, and they need to be evacuated to a safe place. Uh, so for me, it's a, it's a continuation. It's not opposites. It's one of the same. And we also meet a 64-year-old man in uniform, Dudi Kalaniado. He's volunteering as an army reservist, and he went to a community that had been invaded by Hamas militants. He went to help the animals. To rescue cows, milking cows, that didn't been milked for the last three days because there is a war. They didn't have food. It's a community that depends on the cows for its livelihood. Keeping the cows alive means keeping hope alive that the Israeli residents can return when the war ends. And I asked him how he's feeling about the war. Feelings now are in the sides. We don't feel now, but it's terrible. It's terrible what happened. Terrible and unbelievable. He had also rescued his nephew's dog, Pluto. The dog had been locked up for more than two days at home. The home had come under Hamas gunfire. We filled the entire bathtub with water, and we left a whole sack of dog food open for him. And we told him, we'll come back to take him. That's the dog's owner, Amir Tibon. He's an Israeli newspaper journalist. He is relieved to be back with his dog, and he's thankful to his uncle. He did an amazing thing today, because he saved the cows, and he saved the dog, but he saved the kibbutz. Look at all the helpers here. Isn't that amazing? It is, but there's one, uh, one organization that is not really being helpful right now. It's the government. Where are they? We don't, we don't understand what's going on. I mean, this is a huge failure of the government. We have to fight. We have to win. But this will not be forgotten. What happened here is the biggest failure in the history of the state of Israel. So at this rest stop, you see the spirit of Israelis rushing to help in any way they can. And military helicopters are flying above. Soldiers are gathering there at that rest stop on their way to the Gaza border for a potential ground invasion, not knowing if they'll come back alive. And we see one religious Jewish man offering soldiers blessings and hugs. He puts his hands on their heads and he recites a biblical blessing. May God bless you and protect you and bring you peace. And one by one, he gives the soldiers a long hug. Powerful reporting from our colleague Daniel Estrin, who was near the scene of the fighting in southwest Israel last evening. He's now back in Tel Aviv and still on the line. And Daniel, of course, continuing to report. So what are you hearing, Daniel, from the other side of the battle lines that would be inside Gaza? Yeah, you know, it's been, I've been working the phones because the Gaza border is sealed off. Journalists like me cannot get in. Um, now Egypt's border with Gaza is closed, so Palestinians cannot escape Gaza at all. Uh, over 180,000 Palestinians have fled their homes. According to the United Nations, they're seeking shelter inside Gaza, in UN facilities, even in the main hospital. And our producer, Anas Baba, in Gaza, met one woman, M. Mahmoud Kolak. She was amid the crowd of Palestinians seeking shelter at the hospital, and here's what she told us. She's saying, no, 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 this area is not safe for all the people here. 
not safe from Israeli attacks. She said there's no safe place in Gaza. And Steve, it is a shocking death toll so far. Officials say at least 900 Israelis were killed and more than 700 Palestinians in Gaza were killed. Daniel, I just want to make sure that I'm clear on this. Prime Minister Netanyahu told Palestinian civilians, you better flee because we are coming for Hamas. There's nowhere for them to go or at least not much of a place they can go. Nowhere for them to escape Gaza. Uh, There are places like the U.N. facilities, but uh, as this woman has just said, uh, they don't feel safe anywhere. NPR's Daniel Estrin continuing to report for us from Israel. Daniel, thank you so much. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report. Today, a story about the labor force. A lot of people have come back to the workforce in the last few years, yet participation is below where it was before the pandemic hit. Experts say that's primarily because of older workers, and we'll look how that's affecting the labor force. Clouds and scattered showers in our forecast today. Temperatures in the 60s. Tonight will be cloudy. Lows in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow with highs in the upper 60s. It is 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. In business news, employers in Massachusetts appear to be feeling more pessimistic about the economy. That's according to the latest Business Confidence Index that was released today by the Associated Industries of Massachusetts. WBUR's Zaninjor Enwameka explains how that's affecting company leaders' decisions moving forward. The latest index finds businesses are starting to see signs of an economic slowdown. Christopher Guerin of Associated Industries of Massachusetts says employers are preparing for the future. That can mean a slowdown in production. That can mean postponing uh, a planned expansion. That can mean pushing out uh, planned projects. So instead of uh, doing a project in a year, might be a year and a half. One area that isn't slowing down is the job market. Employers in the survey are still looking to hire. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sininjor and Wameka. Marlboro-based Boston Scientific is planning to open its first facility in China. Company leaders say the move is part of a plan to expand production in the region. Reuters reports it'll be a factory in Shanghai, which is home to factories of other U.S. companies, including GM and Apple. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Innovative new art by Boston-area artists in the 2023 Foster Prize Exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. And New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Open house October 19th, neiacademy.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. 
We all experience grief at some point, but many of us avoid talking about it. Reporter Meg Dalton visited a church in Connecticut that's trying to change that with a creative approach, using a telephone. An old cream-colored rotary phone sits in a grove of trees just outside a historic church. A crowd surrounds the phone, and Kate Bagnati steps toward it, picks up the receiver, and dials a number. Hey, Mama. I miss you. And I know, I know you're around. But this is a pretty cool way to talk. Bagnati's mom, Grace, died about a year ago. The phone she's using isn't connected to a telephone line. It's called a wind phone. Reverend Deborah Runlett is the pastor of Ridgebury Congregational Church in Ridgefield. Her church's wind phone is the first in Fairfield County and one of three in Connecticut. It is a means by which to have the conversations you didn't get to have, the good, the bad, the ugly, and know that the wind will carry them to the source that needs to receive them. Richfield's wind phone is attached to a wooden post with a little roof at the end of a gravel path. There's a bench next to it and a plaque above it. Linda Shannon Bluestein reads the inscription. This phone will never ring. It's connected by love to nowhere and everywhere. It's for those who have an empty place in their heart left by a loved one. Say hello. Say goodbye. Talk of the past, the present, the future. The wind phone will carry a message. Bluestein and her son Jacob Shannon are the brains behind the Ridgefield wind phone. They approach Reverend Runlet about bringing the phone to her church. Bluestein has terminal cancer and is in hospice care. Earlier this year, she made national headlines after successfully suing the state of Vermont to drop its residency requirement for medical aid in dying. She wants the wind phone to be a space for normalizing grief. I don't think that when my body dies, that's the end of me. I think there's so much more. And I want them to know that we're still connected by love. And I, I saw having a wind phone here as a place where my family and friends could go and, and keep me alive. More than 150 wind phones have popped up across the country in recent years. That's according to mywindphone.com a website that locates and lists wind phones. Amy Dawson created the website a year and a half ago to honor her daughter, Emily, who died in 2020. Grief gets swept under the carpet. People get three bereavement days if they lose their spouse or their, you know, their family member, their child. Like, are you kidding? And you're supposed to move on. And you don't move on, you move forward. Dawson was inspired by the first ever wind phone. Bluestein was too. That phone was created in 2010, more than 6,000 miles away in Itsuchi, Japan. Bluestein says a garden designer, Itaru Sasaki, was mourning the loss of his cousin. He found an old phone, and he, he built a little, in his garden, he built a little phone booth, and he would dial up his cousin and say, oh, this is doing well this year, the kale is wonderful, and, and, just, and he said it really helped him. A year later, an earthquake and tsunami devastated the region. Sasaki opened his wind phone to the public, and it became a place of solace for thousands of visitors. That's what Bluestein hopes to do here in Connecticut. In her dining room, she has a collection of rotary phones in different colors, all waiting for a home. I don't have a lot of time left, but I have a lot of ideas uh, about where I would like wind phones to be around uh, Fairfield County. Bluestein thinks of these wind phones as her legacy— something tangible her friends, family, and even strangers 
can use to stay connected to those they've lost. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Meg Dalton. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR, it's the BBC. On the show today, they'll have the story of the late San Francisco billionaire Chuck Feeney. He gave away almost all of his $8 billion fortune before he died yesterday. It's 10 minutes before 9. Automakers are moving toward electric vehicles, but the route many are choosing to get there involves a lot of trucks and SUVs that are not electric. What's unusual is that this is a transition like we've never seen before, probably since the moving assembly line of Henry Ford. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More on the complicated transition for automakers on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Russian officials say they're in talks with both Israeli and Palestinian officials in an effort to help reach a settlement agreement. And that's despite claims from Ukraine alleging that Russia wants to fuel the war in Israel. Biden administration officials are meeting today to try to negotiate a new plan on student debt relief. And Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich will remain in jail until at least the end of November after after losing an appeal on espionage charges. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wheeler School for students in nursery through grade 12. Discover where your curiosity can take you at Wheeler, October 21st open house, wheelerschool.org. Clouds, scattered showers today, highs in the 60s, cloudy tonight, lows in the 40s, 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. That tight labor market, thank or blame older workers who opted to hang up their spurs. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing stability and continuity for client relationships. More information at BairdDifference.com. And by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden password manager stores unlimited logins, secure notes, credit cards, and more with access on any device. More at Bitwarden.com. I'm David Brancaccio. First, the Israel-Hamas war did spike energy prices for a day or so, but the price of crude is easing off today at $86 a barrel this morning. That wholesale price is now lower than it was for much of September into October. Forecasters see demand falling, which takes the edge off prices. And since odds are you don't buy crude, what does this mean for retail, gasoline, and heating oil? Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. Something strange has been happening to U.S. gasoline prices. They've been declining, even though OPEC Plus has been trying to prop up oil prices. Last month, Saudi Arabia and Russia, key members of the oil cartel, said they would extend voluntary production cuts through the end of the year. Sure enough, oil prices rose. The U.S. benchmark peaked at more than $93 a barrel. But then prices deflated because investors remain unconvinced that demand will hold up. In fact, data from the Energy Information Administration shows gasoline demand falling in the U.S. to its lowest seasonal levels in 26 years. Wholesale gas prices have followed. And AAA last week predicted $3 a gallon gas at the pump in many states within weeks. 
the conflict between Israel and Hamas could change forecasts should Iran, an oil producer, be directly implicated or if relations between Saudi Arabia and the West sour. But for now, gasoline demand is down, in large part because of higher interest rates. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. The average cost of gas is now 3.68 a gallon nationwide, down 4% from one month ago. For my market screens here, S&P and Nasdaq futures are up by less than a tenth of a percent, so not much of a hint on a direction once formal trading begins in about half an hour. The bond market is back at it after its day off for Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, with the 10-year interest rate down sharply now, 4.69%. People are buying bonds as a perceived safer haven for money given war in Israel. From energy markets and financial markets to labor markets, as pandemic eased, people went back into the labor force, either working or actively working. Yet, what's called the labor force participation rate, still below where it was just before COVID. Yet prime age workers, 25 to 54, are working at a higher rate than before pandemic. But what's been happening with older workers is where our story lies. Here's Marketplace's Henry Epp. After COVID hit, a bunch of older Americans decided to retire early because they could afford it, says Nancy Vandenhouten, lead U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. These individuals are more apt to have retirement savings, more apt to be homeowners. For those who might want to come back, work itself hasn't gotten any easier, says Joe Brusuelis, chief economist at RSM. Some companies have turned to technology to fill in labor shortages. It's often difficult for older workers to adapt Therefore, we're seeing many people just drop out of the workforce. Some older Americans have come back in strong numbers, especially women 55 to 64, says Nancy Vandenhouten. But she says the participation rate isn't likely to ever fully rebound because the country as a whole is getting older. As the population ages, labor force participation in the aggregate is going to trend lower and labor supply is a key component of economic growth which spells big challenges for the economy in the years ahead. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity.co slash marketplace. The International Monetary Fund today left unchanged its estimate of global economic growth for the year. It still says the world economy will get 3% bigger this year. The U.S. has been a rare economic bright spot. Here's Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer. The World Bank IMF meetings are being held in Marrakesh, Morocco, a region struggling to recover from a severe earthquake that killed thousands of people just a month ago. The contrast with the U.S. could not be more stark. The IMF says the U.S. is the only major economy where output has returned to pre-pandemic levels. Right now, it does seem like we've seen a steady amount of economic resilience. Ed Moya is a senior market analyst at the brokerage firm Owanda. He says U.S. consumers are powering much of the economic growth. Moya says they're still spending a lot and they feel secure in their jobs since employers are so desperate to hire. Every time we expect the labor market to slow down, we get surprised with an impressive payrolls number. 
Also, the U.S. is still stimulating its economy with big investments in things like infrastructure, which other countries can't afford. And during times of crisis, there's more demand for the U.S. dollar, which pushes up its value. Shahrazad Rahman teaches international finance at George Washington University. So I can buy others' goods, the ones I import, cheaper. My investments overseas, whether it's in real estate or it's in financial assets, is what? Cheaper because of the exchange rate now that my dollar is stronger. But Rahman says that hurts other countries who borrow money in dollars that are worth more than their own currencies. Investors are also flocking to U.S. Treasury bonds right now because they're seen as a so-called safe haven. That means we pay less to borrow, but Rahman says other countries have to pay a lot more. Now, basically, they're in distress, right? Countries like Ethiopia, Sri Lanka, Ghana, pick any one of them. The U.S. isn't immune to global shocks, though, like, say, if oil prices soar because of the Israel-Hamas war. Tim Murray is a capital market strategist at T. Rowe Price. He says higher energy prices would dim consumer confidence. That bright spot, that U.S. consumer bright spot, would fade. Also, spiking energy prices could push up inflation, which would lead the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates higher for longer. That might help cool off the economy, but could also dent economic growth. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. The fall meetings of the IMF and World Bank are underway this week. Our producers are James Graham, Naomi Rainey, Ali Dalbertansen, Nick Perez, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series with Grupo Corpo, Brazilian Contemporary Dance at the Box Center Schubert Theater, October 28th and 29th, celebrityseries.org. And Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.